Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Gary Ferguson will join us to discuss lessons of nature. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Well, in the modern world, we oftentimes lose sight of the importance of nature. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Gary Ferguson. Mr. Ferguson is the author of 24 books on nature and science, and has recently had his lead essay for Orion Magazine titled A Deeper Bloom, selected by the American Society of Journalists and Authors as the best essay. For the past 20 years, he's given keynote lectures on the ecological and psychological values of nature, and was previously faculty of the Rainier Writing Workshop at Pacific Lutheran University. He's the author of the new book, Eight Master Lessons of Nature, What Nature Teaches Us About Living Well in the World. And Mr. Ferguson, very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, thanks. Uh, wonderful to be here with you. Well, a great book, Eight Master Lessons of Nature that you've written here. Why did you decide to write the book? Well, I have at this point in my life spent the past 40 years as a nature and science writer going out whenever possible into the big wild places of the planet. I absolutely love being in wilderness for prolonged periods of time. And I decided, perhaps it's at the threshold to elderhood here, that it would be good for me and perhaps good for my readers to to look back and collect some of these lessons of what I've learned, not just from the natural world, but also from hanging out with some very brilliant men and women scientists who were biologists, uh, ecologists, botanists, geologists, as well as some wonderful uh, folks from the Native American community especially. And so the Eight Master Lessons was an attempt to sum up, if you will, the more amazing things that I have learned about the uh, natural world, but also, and, and just as important in my mind, to build a bridge to the reader to let us all consider the fact that it isn't just nature doing these cool things. As a part of nature, we humans, too, have access to these superpowers, and we can very much align ourselves to a way of living that I think will be more satisfying and perhaps more sustainable in the decades to come. With the pace of technology increasing so rapidly, we're coming a little more divorced from what nature can tell us. Well, I, I think that's very true. And on one hand, uh, we have evolved to be a species that's extraordinarily clever when it comes to that kind of intellectual creativity that yields breakthroughs in medicine and, and technology, uh, cell phones and all the other fun things that we have in our lives. What we also have the ability to do but probably haven't paid as much attention is to also use our frontal lobes and our self-reflective thinking capacity to consider the reality of life that has to do not so much with subject-object thinking as underscored science, especially in the early centuries where there's a distinct object and uh, the only way we can know the truth of it is to isolate it and remove ourselves from the equation. That's all well and good, but it kept us from perceiving the world 
and the reality of the world as a very relational, interconnected place. So along with our wonderful technology, I think we do need to take steps to be able to learn to see the world beyond that particular storytelling circumstance as a more relational, connected, diverse place. And we will live more satisfying lives if we can do that. Do you have eight lessons in the book? Uh, The first lesson, though, really sums it up is that we have to embrace that we just don't know everything. Yeah. And when you get too obsessed with subject-object thinking, as we have, I think we've taken that wonderful way of seeing the world and somehow along the way decided that was the only way to see the world. And when you're obsessed with that particular way of isolating things to understand them, you you do end up forgetting that there are other perceptions available to us. And one of the things I wanted to do with this book is to try to begin to open up those perceptions because in, in truth, while we have the technology we need to meet a challenge like climate change, what we don't necessarily have is that deep sense of passion and almost familial connection to the planet that will allow us to sustain the energy and the commitment financial investment and everything else that has to accompany those technological breakthroughs. So I'm interested in how we nourish ourselves and feed ourselves for this long journey ahead. Are we just not spending enough time out there just embracing nature? I think that's true. Uh, we would be well served. Much research is out there to, to uh, shore this up, especially the world of psychology, to just be able to, even in a city, interact with nature unhampered by our small screens for even 15 or 20 minutes a day. It's interesting that neuroscience is showing that even the act of going outside and looking to the top of a tree or the tops of trees, will change the brain chemistry in such a way that it reduces certain kinds of stress hormones like cortisol. It tends to lower the blood pressure. It opens up kind of a more calm, reflective, almost meditative mindset. And so it doesn't take a lot, but it does take something. The the other thing I'm a little bit aware of is that when we first go out into nature, even for 15 or 20 minutes, and we put our phones away and we just open ourselves up to it, that's for a culture that's really built on knowing what's going to happen, being able to predict, being able to control. It's, it's rather unsettling to be out there in the natural world for a while and not be able to grasp what all's going on. And, and indeed, we, we still can't. We can't even begin to understand what a forest is going through on any given day. But it's worth mentioning, this was what Einstein knew so well and would intentionally go out into the woods on the Princeton campus, try to get his head around the fact of what makes a forest able to uh, exist on a, on a given day, knowing that he could never do it. The systems were far too complex, as they still are for our understanding. But by trying to put his intellect to the task, he would essentially and end up having to surrender his left brain, if you will, or his intellect. And in that surrendering, get to a, a higher, more creative, less discerning place, if you will. And from that creative place, he often had enormous breakthroughs on the problems he was working on in physics. So if we can just get used to the discomfort that comes in those early moments of just being out in nature without our phones and without you know, the usual technology, our brains will restore themselves or realign themselves with some rather useful energies. If you will, I would like to play that segment from your book where you read about Einstein's communication with nature. When Albert Einstein got stuck on a problem 
and truth be told, he got stuck quite a bit. He'd often go outside, not to some remote wild landscape, but to a little patch of forest on the Princeton campus, maintained especially for him, known as the Institute Woods. You might assume he was merely trying to clear his head, as a lot of us do when we step out for a quick change of scenery, but it's a more intriguing story. Once out in those familiar woods, Einstein was said to stop and look around, taking in the trees and shrubs, the sky overhead, and the grasses underfoot. At first he'd try to imagine the workings of it all, knowing full well he couldn't do it. Consider that even today, more than 60 years after his death, we still don't fully understand everything that's happening in a square yard of dirt, let alone a patch of woods. But that was the point. He wanted to intentionally overwhelm himself, get disoriented, blow his mind. And thus, with his intellect brought to its knees, Einstein consistently found himself in a freer, more intuitive space. Look deep into the mysteries of nature, he liked to say, and then you will understand better. So communicating with nature, connect with the vast garden of connections that thrive on Earth. Yes, it's true. And, and we're continuing to find out the level of connection in ways that are just, quite frankly, astonishing, even to those who are doing the research. You know, when we walk out uh, um, under a tree, for instance, we've known for some time that the the carbon dioxide we exhale is exactly what the tree needs. And just as the oxygen the tree gives off is just what we need. But now we know there are these chemicals called phytoncides that the tree is giving off and we breathe them in. And with every breath, those chemicals actually uh, fortify our immune system. They strengthen our heart. On and on it goes, finding more and more of how we're we're dependent on this system. This, this idea that's very popular in the United States, especially of a rugged individual, is, is just found nowhere on earth. There's no such thing. So that's all well and good as a story, but uh, I think we need to remember that it is a story. It is an illusion. If we want to deal with reality, then we're going to have to open ourselves up to a far more complex symphony of uh, interconnection. There's a lot of change going on to the planet. Life forms are disappearing at a very high rate, and we're losing some of that diversity. Yeah, it's very concerning. I mean, it, it's certainly, I think, concerning to lose any life form, which, after all, is the product of trial and error to, to, to end up where we are now. So to lose anything that's uh, come along during that process and managed to hang on for a long time, to lose it unnecessarily is, I think, a source of grief. And we would probably be wise to acknowledge those unnecessary losses uh, before we can move on to a, a healthier position. But there's also much to be concerned about as far as the diversity actually holding up the very systems that drive, you know, the, the atmospheric cycles and the water cycles and the nitrogen cycles. And so it isn't just a matter sometimes of, oh, well, we'll carry on just as before, even though we've lost all these things. There are some things we're losing that not just deny us, perhaps some in the case of let's say plants in the, in the rainforest, some future chemical that could be the cure to cancer, we also potentially start losing or greatly compromising the very processes that make life possible in the first place. And that's something to be uh, very, very concerned about. There are eight lessons in the book. The one that sticks out for you is just kind of draw from. Well, connection, the, the fact of connection is super important in that 
the more we embrace that. And science now, while science may have carried us into the habit of separation thinking that's led us down some wrong roads, science today is also leading us out of that into the understanding that the world is connected. And the more we can perceive it and treat it that way, the better. But I think one of the, the lessons that surprised me, and I'm chewing on quite deeply uh, on any given day, is the essential nature of diversity. And it has to do a lot with what we were talking about earlier, not being able to um, continue the processes of life if that diversity is compromised beyond a, a certain point. And beyond diversity being the number one predictor of resiliency in any natural system, increasingly social science is showing that it's phenomenally important to realizing our creative capacity in the human community. Um, there was a study of um, uh, a million scientific uh, papers, peer-reviewed journal articles by scientists, and they found that by far the ones that were cited most often and therefore had the most influence arguably on the scientific community were the ones that were made up of the most diverse groups of people, people of different races, genders, even different intellectual wiring, if you will, uh, in some cases, including folks with autism who had a particular way of uh, tackling problems that was very useful. So this kind of claiming the strength and power of diversity is something we really should start considering seriously. I mentioned in the book that there's even a, a recent study that showed that if you're going through a, a, a trial for a crime you didn't commit, you'd be very well served to hope that jury is, is of mixed race and gender because those juries, for reasons that aren't entirely understood, um, tend to be more rigorous during the courtroom action so they can remember more of what actually happened and they're more methodical and effective in their deliberative uh, processes. So I, over and over and over again, just as, diversity is important in the natural world, we're starting to learn that it has enormous potential for us as human beings. And that would be a great lesson, I think, for us to embrace more fully. Certainly watching other animals can tell us a little bit more about how we should act as humans. Yes, so true. Mammals, if we focus on them specifically, all of us have been trying to figure out how to not just survive, but thrive for a long, long time. And so it would make sense that uh, other species would have come up with methods that are worth looking at and paying attention. This is one of the benefits of our reflective capacity. Uh, we've evolved to have these brains that can consider the wisdom of what's going on around us and incorporate it when it's appropriate to do so. And I had a, a special experience over many years studying wolves uh, in Yellowstone National Park after they uh, came back, uh, were reintroduced in 1995-96. And watching how they grieve the loss of a, a partner in the case of an alpha male and female, watching how, to what extent they cooperate with each other, it's, it's incredible to consider how highly evolved these other social beings are and how effective they are in their, in their strategies for how to live. One of the things that occurred to me when I was watching the wolves after a year or so of it is I had always heard many Native American tribes in the Rocky Mountain region and the plains talk about how they base their system of governance on watching wolves, and I never quite understood what they meant. But in fact, you can see that wolf packs in general allow a lot of individual freedom of the pack members to run off and explore this or that or play or you know look for a partner or whatever they happen to want to do. But then they 
they're called back and they come back with, with fierce loyalty and fidelity for the good of the group, whether it's hunting or whether it's time to take care of the pups. And so that, that system of governance where you've got creative individual freedom, but you've also got uh, fidelity and, and uh, allegiance to, to your community is um, understandably uh, an appealing model that had a, a great deal of influence on, like I say, those Native American cultures. So those kinds of lessons are all around us. And I feel, um, I feel satisfied in, in learning about these things and watching them unfold uh, because it does make it seem like we're just part of this vast uh, collection of species making this incredible journey on this planet. The lesson this gave me a lot of hope was lesson seven, this idea of resiliency, that despite what might happen in nature, things will come back and rise again. Yes, that's very hopeful to, to me as well. And in fact, uh, in the wake of many kinds of disruptions, nature comes back even even stronger than than before and i've seen this happen over and over especially with wildfires which are fairly common where i live where it looks like the land is completely devastated and very very quickly in a matter of months and certainly in uh, in a few years the system is is thriving again and one of the re, you know there are two of the lessons that actually have a lot to do with that uh, one is the interconnection of everything so that if the if the main seeds of those connections are somehow still available in the area and can present themselves, that connectivity forms the basis for that thriving. And the other is, is what we talked about as far as diversity. So those particular uh, qualities, I think, are also significant in our own lives. And I have experienced uh, much the same in, in a tragic loss uh, that I had a number of years ago when my first wife was killed in a canoeing accident. Uh, she had asked for her ashes to be scattered in her five favorite wilderness places. And in going out into the wilderness, I was able to once again touch the wisdom of those, uh, of those qualities, that connection, that diversity, and make sure that that was part and parcel of my own grief journey. And I think it had no little amount to do with the fact that ultimately I was able to come out of that tragedy even stronger than I was before. With all the things that come and go in nature, there are still those ancient animals, ancient organisms that show how old nature is, how much has gone on to get to where we are today. Yes, I, I quote a, a friend of mine who's now 85 uh, saying that basically when you go out for a walk in the woods, you're walking among champions. This is the best the earth could come up with across all of these millions of years. And that's so true. It's a reminder to be uh, among these, these various species and individually old things like redwood trees and so forth to just kind of settle into the notion of how well things have developed and that we too do in fact have much of what we need if we're willing to apply it to, to the areas that have to do with sustainability and connection and compassion. And, um, you know, and I think we're really being called to do that uh, right now uh, in the face of climate change. The, the thing that I was very struck writing the chapter on elders, the elders of any species is that that really is an essential way that any socially complex animal survives. It's by taking knowledge, hard-fought knowledge in some cases, from those who have been around the longest. Now, that doesn't mean 
that uh, any given social system doesn't reply on the ener- uh, doesn't depend on the energy and uh, enthusiasm and uh, uh, strength of of the youth. Absolutely, but that married to the wisdom of the elders and elephants are a wonderful example of this is really what gives the resiliency uh, potential for, for any given species. And I would say that's true for humans as well. Sort of reconnecting with nature and drawing from these lessons of nature. First of all, we could just remember that we are nature and that we have built a wall between the human psyche and the natural world for various reasons. And that wall can be knocked down. We can reclaim our birthright as part of what was produced by this fantastic set of circumstances on this planet. And then secondly, to really go out quietly now and then and consider how much the earth really has your back. It's not anymore something as it perhaps was for some cultures, some people over time, something to be conquered and afraid of. And it beyond all of those fears, real and imagined, these systems have our back. They allow us to survive and to thrive. And so the more we can know them, the more we can honor them, the more we can act with their well-being in mind, then the better off we'll all be. Well, we were just talking with Mr. Gary Ferguson. He's the author of the new book, Eight Master Lessons of Nature, What Nature Teaches Us About Living Well in the World. Mr. Ferguson, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Oh, 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 oh,